Take your Bibles to Titus chapter number 2 this evening. Titus chapter number 2. Last week we began our study. We call, we're calling this study, Running Your Race with a Pace of Grace. Really what we're trying to do is we're trying to avoid spiritual burnout in the daily grind of living. So many people will get on fire for God only to find that fire dwindle down to but maybe just an ember. They're barely surviving, hanging on to a thread. They've been closer to God before than they are now. They know it. Everyone around them knows it. And they're hanging on by a thread. All I can say is it isn't for a lack of grace because God supplies that daily. And so what we're trying to do is trying to study as Christians how we can access this grace and how we cannot burn out in the difficult world that we live in, facing the many spiritual temptations, the, uh, the lusts of this world. We fight this fight. The Bible calls it spiritual warfare. We fight this fight, and so we need every day to make sure we're running, not as a sprinter because our life is much more than a sprint. It's a marathon. So we need to run our race with patience, but with a pace of grace. So Titus chapter number 2, verse number 11, this week we'll look at the lessons that grace has to teach us, or just simply the lessons of grace. Last week I encouraged everyone in the auditorium to learn who the face of grace is. John chapter 1 tells us that Christ was the Word, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory full of grace and truth, the Bible tells us. He was full of grace. And so we looked at that last week. I challenge you to look into the face of Christ on the cross and tell me you don't see overwhelming grace that constrains us to live for Him. So this week we look at the lessons that grace has to teach us. We'll begin reading in verse number 11. The Bible says... For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. Now we won't necessarily touch on this verse a ton this evening, although we will later on in our study. But any person that tells you that God selected the men and women to salvation or elected some to hell is absolutely an error. Because the grace of God, which bringeth salvation, hath appeared to all men. Thereby, if men go to hell, it is by their choice. Because grace looked them right in the face. And it was the same face of grace that we looked at last week. It's Jesus hanging on the cross for the sins of the world. For God is not slack concerning His promise, but is long-suffering toward us. We're not willing that any man should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And the way He achieves this is by revealing His grace through His Holy Spirit to every man. So any Calvinistic doctrine that you want to talk about, you can go talk to a wall because I'm sure you'll have a better chance of convincing them of your viewpoint than you will me because God loves every sinner that's ever been. Verse number 12. This grace, though, that we see in verse 11, this grace of God that hath appeared to all men, it brings salvation and every man has looked it right in the face, that same grace teaches us, in verse number 12, some things. And what we're going to do tonight is take a look at the things 
that it's teaching us, verse number 12, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity, and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Now, as we studied last week, I have to be honest with you, we did not go over some of the most fundamental things about grace. For instance, we didn't even define what grace is. And you say, Brother Andrew, I know what grace is. I've been in church years and years and years. I know what grace is. Oh, you may have heard a definition of it, but I'll tell you, grace is one of the most misunderstood doctrines in all the Word of God. See, it has been rightly said, and since I'm not smart enough, I cannot think of a better definition, but grace is the undeserved favor of God. I wish I was smart enough to give you a more elaborate, more wordy and lengthy definition, but frankly, I'm not. Because grace is the undeserved merit or or the undeserved favor of God without any merit earning that grace. That's what it is. But grace is so misunderstood and has been throughout centuries. And I'll give you two reasons why I believe it has. Number one, because grace is unlike any other gift or thing that we ever experience in this life. One reason is because there's two parties that really try to interpret grace, and both of them are on both sides of the aisle. They're extremists, if you will. There's one party that simply cannot understand what grace is. It's very different than what we're accustomed to. You see, you're taught from a young age that if you're going to get good grades in school, what do you have to do? You have to apply yourself. And when you apply yourself and you study and you work hard, what happens? You get rewarded for that success. The same thing in our workplaces, right? If you work harder than the next guy, don't you think you deserve the promotion? You're working hard, and and that's the way everything in society works. It's we work to achieve something, but grace is quite the antithesis of that, is it not? Grace is unmerited. No amount of work, no amount of skill or talent or ability achieves grace. It is freely bestowed by God upon all men. So it runs in opposition to our worldly experience. Not only that, but it runs in opposition of every false religion in this world. It has been said that there are only two religions in the world, those that do and those that have been done. You see, Christ dying on the cross did everything for you that you couldn't do. His death was substitutionary. He took your place in a place that you couldn't even go. You were bound for hell and Christ spent uh, hours on the cross and three days in the heart of the earth so that you didn't have to. And so we don't understand this. And and one of the reasons is because every false religion in the world uses the term grace, but abuses the term grace. For instance, our Catholic friends, many times people call Catholics Christians, but if you know anything about Catholicism, it's so anti-Christian. Because it's not about grace. See, they have this thing in between heaven and hell. They have 
heaven, which is for only the righteous saints, and they have hell, which is for the worst sinners. But they have this middle place, and they call it purgatory. And what purgatory is, it's where people go to temporarily pay for their wrongdoing on earth so that they might be purified so that they can achieve heaven. You see, some people that face their punishment here on earth, like maybe those that are sick or those that are, uh, face a lot of temptation or trials on this earth, they say they're good enough to go already. And then they say that some people have just come, become so holy that they go automatically to heaven. But very few fit either of those two categories. Most everyone else will go to purgatory for at least a time to purify themselves so that they can go to heaven. Man, talk about trying to earn your way to heaven. I'm telling you what, that is so unchristian. How can you look at the face of grace and say, yeah, I need to do something else. I need some of that and a little bit of me. Because every time I get into something, I screw it up royally. When you look in the face of grace, you realize there's nothing you could ever do that could exceed the, limit, the atoning power of that. And so you accept it as the whole payment for your sin. Muslims also use the term of grace and they'll call Allah uh, a gracious God, full of mercy. And they'll almost describe Him very similar as our God, our Elohim God. But I'm telling you right now, they're so different. Because Islam believes that on the day of judgment, if a Muslim's good works outweigh his bad ones, and if Allah so wills it, he may be forgiven of all his sins and granted access into heaven. They put it on a scale. And they say, if your good outweighs your bad, then it's still up to Allah, but you're probably in good standing. And, and it's hard for us to understand grace when everything else in our world is not based on a system of grace. You see, even the good kids get shown favoritism at school, right? We called them teacher's pets. Right? They bring the apple for the teacher. They're the ones that are always studious while you're just trying to sneak in a nap. You see, you have the teacher's pets and they're rewarded. And then you have the rest of us. But every other system that we're familiar with in this world does not work on a system of grace. And it's just odd to us and for our spiritual mind to comprehend that God who is holy and righteous, nobody tells God what to do. And on his own will decided to come and extend you a gift, not because you earned it, not because you were special, not because you are unique, Rather, because you were a rotten, dirty sinner and you needed help. And when the Bible says it like this, when we were weak in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. At the moment you needed Christ the most, undeserved favor was shown upon you and he gave you the grace of God. But it's hard for us to understand it. Because there are there's one party who... Is, is on one side of the aisle who does not understand grace accurately because it's so in opposition to everything else, else in their world. And then there's another party who cannot exercise it properly. You see, throughout the Bible, very early on in the New Testament, we find people who even being preached a pure gospel within days are trying to bring the law back into the system of salvation. 
There were Judaizers that wanted to go back. And that's why Paul says, you've fallen from grace. Believe me, he's not talking about losing your salvation there. He's saying you've fallen from the true doctrine of grace and you've gone back to the weak and beggarly elements like a dog returneth to his vomit. You have tried to bring the law into a perfect system of grace. Even Jude chapter 4 tells us that there were people who were trying to not only bring the law into their religion, but they were trying to use grace as their permissive excuse for whatever they wanted to do. See, Jude chapter 4 says, There are certain men, crept in unawares, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, now notice this, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness. Now what that means is they used God's grace as a permissive excuse to live carnally. And, and, And specifically the term lasciviousness applies to sexual sins. They were saying, well, we're under grace so we can fornicate. It was like God had written them a permission slip, like a a homework pass, if you will, but a sin pass instead. Well, now you're under grace. We find that early in the New Testament. We find in Romans chapter 6, Paul addresses this problem. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? He's trying to address it to those new Christians. And he says, do you think you could just continue to live the way that you want to live because you're under this system of grace? He says, God forbid. Amen. Are we okay with the lights? I feel like the, the Lord's like saying amen as I make a good point. Like, ah! And then when I know it's not good, it dims down, you know. That's grace. Amen. If, if, if the Lord thinks any of this is good, it's definitely grace. There's no doubt about it. But we find, even in the New Testament, people trying to use grace as an excuse to do what they want. And man, in modern day, 21st century Christianity, tell me you haven't experienced some of that yourself. People that say, well, look, I don't have to do what you do because I'm under grace. And I may be getting ahead of myself here, but I heard someone say this a long time ago, and it made so much sense to me. Grace did not come so that we could have more liberty, but we're able to use our liberty as, as, an, as a way to please God. And our liberty should not be used as freedom to practice whatever pursuit we want, but it should be to the glory and praise of God. And if God saved you out of alcoholism, don't tell me He gave you grace to go right back into it. So we understand that grace is so different of a concept for us. There's some people that can't understand it, and then those that try to understand it misuse it and practice it in a way that it's not meant to be practiced. And now these are both sides of the aisle. These are the extremist views, but even within our own circles, what we would consider our, whether you want to say Protestant circles, even if you wanted to bring that circle more tight and say our Baptist friends... There's two terms that you need to be familiar with when it comes to grace, and it is this. Legalism and and liberalism. You see, even within people who interpret the Bible just like you and I do, there's these two groups of people, and, 
And frankly, these two terms have been abused over time because legalism specifically and only applies to works for salvation. It's bringing the law into your salvation. That's the actual definition of legalism. But in modern day, we've, we've almost turned it into a slang term now. And we've manipulated the definition to mean this. Oh, you're just, you're just a legalist. When you want to please God because you don't do what other people do, you get defined, you get termed as a legalist. Amen. Oh, you're telling me that you don't let your wife wear pants? You're just a legalist. And they'll say that kind of stuff. And that's not even what legalism means. But legalism is a term that speaks of someone who wants to live a consecrated life and doesn't have as much of a perspective on the liberty that we have in Christ. You see, legalism is a term that describes a dependence on moral law rather than personal religious faith. Now, frankly, legalism, or at least the idea behind what our modern day term that we would we would, we would define legalism is. We'd say, oh, he's a legalist because he doesn't want to do what everybody else does. It's actually a good thing when you want to live for God and you're, you're willing to come out and be distinctive for God. There's also another viewpoint, which is liberalism. And they're the left side of our circle, right? They're the, they're the people that want to pull the grace card anytime they want. You know, I can wear what I want to church. I can drink what I want when I'm at church. I can say what I want when I'm at work. I can be a part of whatever I want, any social club or any city, because I have liberty. I'm, I'm under grace. And, and we have both people. But grace, or, or what liberalism does, is it's a term that describes a very subjective view to Christian, the Christian life. Liberalism tends to emphasize ethics over doctrine and experience over scriptural authority. You see, scripture is scripture. It, it, is the, it is the focus of every Christian life, or at least should be. And when we are going down a path that scripture disagrees with, it is scripture's job to authority, or authoritatively stand in our way and say, you're headed down a direction that does not please God. And then it is on our obligation to then say, okay, I'm in the wrong here and get right with God. That's what we call repentance. But what liberalism does, it dismisses or absolutely erodes the authority that Scripture has in the Christian life. And you'll hear somebody say something like this. You'll say, oh, Brother Andrew, don't tell me what Scripture says because I've experienced it. Have you ever had a conversation with somebody who's experienced the gift of tongues? Right? That's what they always say. I don't care what the Bible says. I've been there. But that's what liberalism does. It, it teaches us that, that uh, we have no obligation to any man. We're just, our life is totally dependent upon what God thinks about me. And, and let me say this without you getting too mad about me or too, too mad with me. Both of these viewpoints started well. In fact, I don't owe you an explanation for the way I live my Christian life. Which is kind of a liberalistic viewpoint of Christianity. But another truth about that is, and if we were to look at a legalistic perspective, I don't owe you an explanation, but I will give an explanation to God one day. 
And so a holy, committed life that stands and, and, and looks in God's face and says, God, if you tell me that I have privilege to do something else, but, but, but I know that it would offend you or maybe hurt my testimony or hurt the cause of Christ, I don't want to go down that path. And see, that today would be termed as legalism, but it's not. It's a Christian that wants to please God above all else rather than pleasing man, just looking at God and saying, God, I want to please you. And grace is so misunderstood. Both sides of the aisle, the extremists, and both sides of the aisle in our our close-knit Baptist groups, we all have different interpretations. So here's what I'm saying. Let's study the Bible to see what it says. Because I don't want you to learn what my definition of grace is. I don't want you to learn what my application or interpretation of grace is. I want you to see what the Bible says about grace, the lessons that it has for us. I was married to a teacher for a while. She was promoted to being church secretary. Uh, She tells me all the time she wishes she could go back down to the school. Amen. But Miss Amy, she, she was a fantastic teacher. She's the kind of teacher that I would want to look at you know, if, she, if I was still in high school. I wouldn't get much work done, but I'd look at her. Amen. But she's a great teacher. You know why she's a great teacher? She's cared about the students. I mean, she cared about the students. Let me just say this. Man, put your, your children in a place where you know people will care about them. We all have grace, but put your children in a place where you know people will care about them. So here we find uh, Miss Amy. She's a great teacher. She's just a wonderful teacher. But I'll never forget how involved the life of a teacher is. You see, they work. They have to be up at the school 7, 7.30. They get home about 5 o'clock. And then they have to sit in your living room and grade papers and make lesson plans. The life of a teacher is extremely busy. I wouldn't trade it at all for what I do because I don't come to work very much. So, Brother Marshall's like, amen, amen. But, but you see, my wife is a fantastic teacher, but I'll never forget at the beginning of the year, she would have to make these lesson plans. And, and these lesson plans were so important because if she ever got ahead of herself they miss maybe a very fundamental truth or element in the study that they're learning. So, so she has to build these lessons so that they grow upon each other. Lesson one helps lead into lesson two. I mean, a lot of work went into these lesson plans. So let's look at the lesson plan of grace this evening. Are you with me? Number one, in Titus chapter number two, I want to see this in verse number 12. The first lesson that grace has for us is, grace teaches us about a separated life. Verse number 12, Titus chapter number two. The Bible says, what is grace? This grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. Okay, teaching us. Well, what's it teaching us? First of all, it's teaching us, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. Now, rarely, if ever, do you hear grace used in a manner to not be permissive, but to actually be restrictive. You don't hear Christians say, well, I'm not going to go there because I live under grace. (laughs) 
That's so counter-opposite to the way most people use grace. But here, the Bible is telling us in verse number 12, grace teaches us, number one, that we ought to come out from among them. I want you to take your Bibles, if you will, to John chapter number 17. John chapter number 17. Those that would try to dismiss their responsibility and they'll say this new thing, like we're under this... I live under grace, what they try to do is they try to compartmentalize God. And compartmentalize is a term that most Christians understand, but really what it is, is it's dispensationalism. What dispensationalism is, it's found in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 2. The Bible says, If ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given me to you, word. Now, this is getting kind of deep, but I figure if you're going to be at church, we might as well learn something. Amen? So what the dispensationalism is, is it's throughout the course of time, the way that God has dealt with His people in different manners. Now, those that like to claim dispensationalism and dismiss their responsibility because I live under grace, they like to believe that God dealt with His children in different ways throughout different dispensations. But we find in in the book of Hebrews that even the law was a shadow of the things to come. You see, God has always saved people by grace through faith. Abraham was counted unto righteousness unto him because he believed God. What saved Abraham? Belief in God. Just like it saved every Old Testament patriarch and every minor prophet, they believed in a coming Messiah. Every time they slaughtered that lamb, they looked at that lamb not as the thing that saved them, but the foresight, the thing that came before Christ, the Lamb of God, which would take away the sins of the world. I tell it to the youth department like this, and maybe this will help you understand it. You see, if Christ is the line that separates A.D. from B.C., we're on this side of the line, A.D., And we are saved by grace through faith by looking back at the cross. You with me? So if you lived in B.C., you were saved by grace through faith looking forward to the cross. It all took the same faith. And so what these people that use dispensationalism as an excuse, they like to say, well, God dealt with them under the law differently, and now God deals with us under grace differently. But that is so far from the truth. I want to teach you something here. In verse, uh, uh, chapter number 17 of the book of John, verse 13, the Bible says, And now come I to thee, and these things I speak in the world, this is Jesus speaking, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I want them to be happy. They're living in a world, in this wicked world, I need them to be happy. So in verse 14, I have given them thy word. The world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. You see, if Christ wanted us out of this world, his prayer request would have been different, wouldn't it? He could have just said, Lord, I I just want you to take them all out. Every time someone gets saved, just take them straight to heaven. They won't have to face all the trials and tribulations of this world. But in fact, in verse 15, he says, I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil... And then you could almost add this in parentheses, and believe me, I'm not adding to the Word of God, but but it's uh, assumed here, 
from the evil that is present in the world. I don't want you to take them out of the world. I want you to just keep them from evil while they're living in the world. Verse number 16. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And he says in verse 17, and this is one of my favorite verses in all the Bible, Sanctify through thy truth, uh, th- sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Now, God gave us his word for a reason. It's not a five-hour energy in the Christian life. It is the guidebook for daily Christian living. It's not just when you need a pick-me-up to consult. The Word of God should be the thing that you focus on every day of your life. It ought to be the the driving train of your life. But I want you to notice in verse 17 there's a word there and it is sanctify. Now God, I want to pray for those that are in the world. I don't want you to take them out of the world. I want you to keep them in the world. But I want you to keep them from evil while they're in this evil world. And he says, sanctify them through thy truth. What does the word sanctify mean? Well, it means this, to separate from profane things and dedicate them to God. You could say it like this, separate. So Jesus' prayer request is this, God, I don't want you to take them out of the world. If we were immediately gone after the point of salvation, if we just left this earth, who would be here to tell them about Christ? And so Jesus isn't praying for you to come out of the world. He's praying for you to be separate from the world while you live in the world. Set apart for the glory of God. Not only does he say this, verse 17, he goes on and says, As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Christ's prayer request for every Christian is that they would use the grace of God in their life to be separate. But that's not the way we hear grace applied, is it? We hear grace applied as an excuse to get a little closer to the world. Well, Brother Andrew, you're going to have to show me a New Testament verse where it talks about wine. What are you doing? You're using your grace to get a little closer to the world. When grace the whole time is teaching us we should be separate from the world. Grace teaches us that we should be separate from the world. Chapter, uh, take your Bible now to 2 Corinthians chapter number 6. 2 Corinthians chapter number 6. Those that kind of use dispensations, different dispensations, the way that God treated His people at different ways in different times, they use this Old Testament law system as compared to this New Testament grace system, and they say, well, I have liberties that maybe old brother Abraham didn't have. I want you to see in verse number 14 of 2 Corinthians chapter number 6, a lot of Old Testament terminology is used here in 2 Corinthians 6. Notice verse number 14. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? What concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? What agreement hath the temple of God with idols? Now that's an Old Testament term, isn't it? Temple of God? Well, who's the temple of God in the New Testament? You are. In fact, your body is the temple of God. 
And so, in verse number 16, we find, What agreement hath the temple of God with idols? It goes on to say, For ye are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye... What's the next word there? Separate, saith the Lord. And touch not the unclean thing... Well, there's another Old Testament term. And I will receive you. See, the unclean thing in the Old Testament speaks of certain things that a Jew was not allowed to be around or touch, or they became ceremonially unclean. And if they were to touch, let's say, a dead animal, they would then have to go be ceremonially ceremonially cleansed so that they could be fit for worship. You with me? And so... All these people that want to dismiss their responsibility because I have grace. No. The Old Testament just taught us what God was going to do in the New Testament. We don't have more liberty than Abraham. Abraham had just as much as we do. You see, we have grace, but it is not to dismiss our accountability or our responsibility to God. It is so that we can be more separated for His glory. If you want to make a difference in this world, you know what you're going to have to do? Be different than the world. You can't be like just everybody else and think that they're going to want to be like you. They've already achieved that. Christians are getting so close and cuddly with the world, but I'm here to tell you God calls us to be ambassadors as, as, as a representative of Him in this foreign land that we find ourselves pilgriming in. We are to be separate, and grace teaches us that. Number two, the second lesson that grace teaches us is grace teaches us about an emulating life. Take your Bibles back to Titus chapter 2, if you will. Grace not only teaches us to be separate, but it teaches us about an emulating life. Verse number 12, the Bible not only says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Soberly, if you're interested, soberly in this context means with moderation. Someone said that it, it, it means with extreme balance. Righteously, obviously, means just or upright. And godly means pious or holy, like God is holy. Did you know that it is God's will for every Christian to be like Him? We ought to look like Him. We ought to talk like Him. We ought to act like Him. We ought to walk like Him. We ought to even smell like Him. Because that's the way we bring glory to Him. The other day I had a conversation with a man any time... Me and preacher come into the office and there's a voicemail on our phone that, you know, it it comes up and says, you have a new voicemail. It is five minutes long. We know that something's gone wrong somewhere in the church on Sunday. Because nobody leaves a five-minute message unless they're complaining. And so uh, we've had a couple calls here lately. One call the other day. uh, You guys need to be more careful as you're driving on 174 coming out of our little turn because this guy spilled his supper all over his car. And he was very upset at one of you because apparently you did not give him enough cherry creamer pointing at Julie. Oh, man. 
Apparently one of you did not give him enough space because he called and he says, is somebody going to buy my meal? I mean, he was livid that somebody caused him to spill his big drink all over his car. That was a good message. (laughs) The other day I got a call from somebody, another five-minute message in the first 30 seconds or so. It was almost like they went to West Coast Baptist College and sat in Pastor Chapel's pastoral theology class because they did the one-minute manager thing, you know. If you've never heard of that, that's one minute of encouragement, one minute of criticism, and then one minute of goal setting. That's what you do. You say, Miss Carrie, you're doing such a good job. Man, you're doing such a good job helping Brother John, but let's just... Let's kind of tame him down a little bit. You see, like, uh, he's a little much for some people. And um, what I would like is for everyone to love Brother John. So, uh, you see, you, you encourage, then you criticize, and then you cast a vision. That's the one-minute manager. And this guy called, and man, for about the first 30 seconds, he did, did nothing but brag about our church. You guys have been so nice. I'm telling you what, y'all even brought by food to my family we, we don't even know y'all, and y'all brought buy food to us. I'm so thankful for that. And he said, but I do have something that happened to me I wasn't very happy about. And he said, uh, you know, one of your uh, uh, folks on your buses, they quoted scripture at me. And I said, how dare them? <laughs> what are you teaching these people, Brother Jim? That they would quote scripture. Apparently, he didn't like somebody... You see, what our bus worker was doing is he said, do you know for sure if you died, you'd be on your way to heaven? And the man said, yes, I I know Jesus. And the bus worker said, he quoted James, and he said, you see, the devils believe and tremble. Our bus worker wasn't being critical, but everybody's saved in Texas. If you haven't noticed, everybody knows Jesus. How could you not? He's on every billboard in town almost, it seems. There's a church on every corner. And so what our worker was doing was he was trying to get through the the lingo of religion and get to the heart and see if he truly had a relationship with Christ. And the man apparently didn't like having James quoted at him. And he called me. Well, actually, he called and left a message five minutes long. We don't know how long it went because our message system cuts you off at five minutes. So he could have been talking for a lot longer time. I don't know. But this man uh, asked us to call him back. So I called him back. And I tried to, you know, diffuse the situation. We don't want to destroy our reputation, our testimony in this town. We represent our king. And I believe our king was gracious when he was on this earth. And so I didn't want to offend him or anything. But I happen to know this man because I had visited him once before. And uh, it just so happens that during the conversation, he brought up the fact that he didn't believe in Christians. Now, he has a relationship with Christ, but he doesn't believe in Christians. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, in the Bible, they're called disciples. I said, you know, you're right. But did you know, also know that the book of Acts tells us that they were called Christians first at Antioch? Did you know that Peter actually refers and says, if you're going through a trial as a Christian, the New Testament calls us Christians. In fact, the term Christian actually started off derogatory. It was given by Gentiles, and it was was demeaning. What they were saying is, oh, you're just a bunch of little Christs. Because the Greek word actually parses out to mean little Christ. 
You know, that man was so critical of being a Christian. I'm telling you what, I'm proud to be a Christian. If I can be like Christ in any way, you just sign me up right now. Because I want to be just like him. So if you're saying that I bear some resemblance to him, oh, you're just a little bit like Christ. Well, that's a whole lot better than not being like him at all. Oh, Christians are in the Bible. And I'm proud to be a Christian. You know what grace teaches us here in in verse number 12? It teaches us that we should live soberly and righteously and godly. In other words, you should be like Christ. Represent Him in all that you do. Grace teaches us about a life that emulates our God and our Savior. John 8, 31 says, Then said Jesus to the Jews which believed on Him, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. Ye are my friends if ye do whatsoever I have commanded you. You see, Christian does not only speak of a relationship to God, but it speaks of a responsibility to Him. Being saved does not automatically make you a Christian according to Jesus. What makes you a Christian is that you would do what he asks you to do. That you begin to walk a life that emulates him and acts like him. He says, you are my friends if you do what I ask you to. So you understand, grace teaches us about a separated life. Grace teaches us about an emulating life. And number three, grace teaches us about an accountable life. Verse number 13. The Bible says, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, one day we're going to look God in the face and we're going to tell Him everything, how we handled everything on this earth. We're going to say, God, you gave me gifts, you gave me talents, you gave me abilities, and Lord, I did or did not serve you with those gifts. I was a good steward for your glory or I simply were. It was not. And I'll be honest with you, this world is lulling Christians to sleep. It's almost like we don't believe He's coming back. But let me say this. If Christ chooses not to come back, it will be the first promise ever that He doesn't keep. He always keeps His promises. And He says, if I go, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will also come so that where I am, there ye may be also. Christ said, I'm coming back, so you better keep an eye towards the sky. 1 John chapter 3 says this, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew Him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not appear what we shall be, uh, but we know that when He shall appear... We shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Verse number 3 says something very interesting. And every man that hath this hope purifieth himself even as he is pure. It's not just enough to know He's coming back. It is your accountability and your responsibility to behave in a manner that says, one day he's coming back. I'll never forget, every once in a while I'd look at my mom and say something or do something. Every once in a while I would do something. I'll never forget the first time I was trying to learn how to throw a curveball. 
I had a golf ball in my hand, I was, and I had learned how to throw a curveball, and I was trying to, you know, get the wrist action down to throw a curveball. And I was throwing it in my living room, and I wound up, and I threw a curveball. And if you don't know, you're supposed to kind of twist your wrist on a curveball. And my finger hooked over that golf ball, and it went straight to a little lantern that was on the uh, wall there and exploded the lantern. And I thought to myself, this ain't good. <laughs> Every once in a while, Mom would have to look at me, and she'd have to say, I'm going to tell your father, and when he gets home, he's going to deal with you. At that moment, it got very real what I had just done. You see, dad was always coming home, but now something was going to happen when he came home. You know, it wasn't going to be like, hey, dad, how was your day? It's like, hey, dad, have you talked to mom yet? (laughs) You see, I've always been accountable to dad, but it wasn't until I had something in between mine and his relationship that I became worried about his presentation. Look, We are all accountable to God. And frankly, I think some Christians are scared to death for the day the Lord splits the eastern sky. Because they're going to have to answer for a laundry list of stuff that they just did not do for Him. Grace teaches us that one day God in His grace, glory, and power is coming back for you. And you're going to have to answer for how you serve Him on this earth. So, number one, grace teaches us about a separated life. Grace teaches us about an emulating life. Grace teaches us about an accountable life. And then number four, grace teaches us about an empowered life. Verse number 14. This is a fantastic passage of Scripture. Verse number 11 through 14. There's so much stuff here, so much power and, and meat. But verse number 14 says this. The same Christ that's coming back for you, verse number 14 says, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. I want you to look in that verse and find anything in there that is your responsibility. See, verse 14 says, He gave himself for us that he might redeem, that he might purify unto himself a peculiar people that he might make us zealous for good works. What you must understand is grace has nothing to do with you at salvation and it also has nothing to do with you in your sanctification. Grace is the empowerment that God gives you to live for him. He says, number one, I want you to be pure, but I'm going to make you that way. How does God make you pure? Well, the Bible tells us in John 17, verse 17, we've already looked at it, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. How are we cleansed? The Bible tells us by the washing of the water, by the word. How do we get to know God? We understand his will for our life and his word. And as we see God's will, we understand that his is so much greater than our will. And so we say, God, I'm going to do what your word tells me to do because my way is not worth it. And we become pure by looking and learning and living God's word. He says, not only am I going to purify you, I want to make you distinct. I want to make you precious. He says, I want to redeem unto myself a peculiar people. He wants us to look different. He wants us to live differently. So he not only says he wants to purify us. He also said in verse number 14, he says that he wanted to redeem us or purchase us. Grace had nothing to do with us in our salvation. 
Just like a Christmas gift given by Santa has nothing to do with you, so too our salvation has nothing to do with us earning it or achieving it. Christ gave himself freely for us. So he says, number one, I want to purchase you. He wants to redeem us. He wants to purify us. Look in verse number uh, 14, and purify unto himself a peculiar people. And then number three, and this we'll spend a bit more time on, he wants to provoke us. He wants to provoke us. What does it say there at the conclusion of the verse? Zealous of good works. See, grace empowers you to not do the things that you don't want to do and do the things that you want to do for God's glory. You see, Paul faced the same battle. Grace empowers us to say yes to what used to appeal to us, or no, say no to what used to appeal to us, and say yes to what now, because God has transformed our mind and our heart and our life, now we can say yes to what God wants us to say yes to. And grace is the daily gift that enables us to do that. It provokes us. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. It is God's will, not only that you would be a Christian, but that you would be a Christian that does good for God. It's his will, it's his way. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 14 How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? What enables us to live this life? God's grace. I'll be honest with you, every day you're going to wake up and you're going to have to die to self, as the New Testament puts it. You're going to have to crucify yourself with Christ. But what gives you the motivation to do that? Grace. God's grace that is greater than our sin, and it's even greater than yesterday's failures, wake up tomorrow and live a life that is pleasing to God. See, grace is one of the most understood things in the Christian life, and therefore it's one of the most neglected. We don't reach out for it because we don't understand it. But what's going to enable you to live your Christian life tomorrow is the grace of God that will empower you and provoke you to do good for Him. I was watching a show yesterday. I I find some of the oddest shows uh, appealing and interesting. But for some reason, I love watching like documentaries on prisons. It's odd as can be, I know, but I love watching them. There's one about Russian prisons That one's pretty rough. I wouldn't recommend that one to you because they just don't care for people over there. But in our prison systems, you know, it's still pretty rough. Ain't gonna lie to you. (laughs) And uh, I was watching one just yesterday and, and I found myself rooting for these inmates. I know that sounds bad, but they, I think National Geographic just did a documentary. They went into this prison for a year and they filmed all these guys. And so you get to know them and, and their dates for trial come up. And like one guy, he had been in there waiting sentencing. He had a rap sheet, man, a mile long. In fact, they brought his uh, uh, convictions to him. And he's like, yeah, there's a felony. There's a felony, felony, felony. This one's not mine. And there's like, what does it matter when you get above five? If you have to start using your toes, it doesn't matter anymore. But man, you, you start cheering for these guys. Because, like, this guy in particular, you know, he's covered in tattoos. And 
And he's like, man, I, I think I finally learned my lesson. I'm, I'm just, I think if I can just get this out of the way, I'll serve my time and I'll go and I'll, you know, I'll start living a life that's not going to put me back in here. You know, every one of them sings the same song. Every one of them. I looked up some, some statistics, probably the same place that Preacher found his statistics earlier today. If it started with a G and rhymed with oogle, it's probably where. <laughs> but according to a government website, which if it's the government, you have to trust it. <laughs> An estimated 68% of prisoners who had been released in this uh, statistic was over 30 different states. It covered 405,000 prisoners that had been released. Over 68% of them found themselves back in prison within three years. Uh, take that date out to five years and you can increase the number to 77% of people that found themselves in prison singing the same song, I won't do it again they go right back to what they used to do. Give them five years, they'll be back there. You know what they experienced when they got released? I bet, I bet if they could have told you the feeling, the excitement the, of the day the gates opened, they're, oh my, what a good day. I bet it felt similar to the day you got saved, actually. You know, when you bowed your knee, a hell-bound sinner, and you stood up a heaven-bound saint. You did nothing to earn it. All you did was say, God, please save me. And he did it. I bet when those gates flung open for those men, it felt a little bit like the change in destination for eternity for you. You looked at God and said, God, save me. And for no reason, not because you're special, not because you're great, God says, forgiven. I bet it felt kind of like that. And then they go out into the world. You know, they're in the world, but they're not going to be part of the old world that they used to live in. But somehow, within three to five years, over three out of every four find themselves back to where they were. I wonder what the statistic is on Christians that get liberated into this life, freed, set free by God's grace. I wonder if three out of four of every one of them find themselves back in the old life, the old way that they used to live in. God says, if any man be in Christ... Well, that's probably a lot of their problem right there. They're not in Christ. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. What is the thing that changes your taste buds? What is the thing that changes your heart and your desires? What is it? Grace. God's grace in the life of a Christian is what empowers you. It's what enables you. It is what equips you, Christian. And we know so little about it. Friend, that's just some of the lessons grace has for us. Tomorrow, I want you to wake up and I want you to grab you a big old heap and handful of God's grace and you face your day knowing God is on your side and you can live for Him if you'll allow Him to work through you. I bet you'll have a good day tomorrow.